And we're going to look at the book of 2 Peter, so you might want to be turning to that. And we're in chapter 1. Okay, well, let's read the whole uh, of the first 11 verses, uh, although we're going to just focus on one of them, really. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God and, and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Phone. Grace and peace. <laughs> Sorry. I really need to ignore things that are going on there. Grace and peace, sorry Chris. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God uh, and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone doesn't have them, he's short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never fall, and you'll receive a rich welcome into our eternal, into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Jesus, and Savior Jesus Christ. Okay. We have been looking at this opening passage for the last few times that I have been preaching, and uh, we've already found so much treasure in the first few verses. Today we're going to look specifically at verse 5, which is this, for this very reason, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. Um, We're going to focus on this verse, but it's important to remember and to remind ourselves of the context. It's important to remind ourselves of the bigger picture, the story so far, uh, you might want to say. Otherwise, we can easily get the wrong end of the stick if we just take one verse and say, that's the verse we're preaching on. You can make a verse sound as though it's saying anything. So... If you just take that verse in, uh, in, in isolation, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. It can sound as though we are, it's all about us, it's all about our effort, it's all about us trying to be good and trying to be knowledgeable. And uh, we'll get totally the wrong idea. Um, context is everything in understanding what something is saying. It reminded me of a friend who uh, received a text from a friend of hers. And this text just said uh, this, that's it, I've had enough, I'm leaving. That's it, I've had enough, I'm leaving. She thought, oh no, oh no, this is, this is from a friend of mine. Maybe she's had enough of her husband. Uh, you know, her marriage is in trouble. She's, she's texting me this uh, and, and, and flagging up. You know, I, ne- I need to get in touch with her. So I think she rang her up. What's the matter? What's the matter? You know, is there anything that I can do to help? Well, first of all, my understanding is the message had been sent to her by mistake. It should have gone to someone else. Um, but secondly, this person was at a football match and her team was losing 4-0. And she was saying, that's it. I've had enough. I'm off. <laughs> I'm leaving. But it sounded very different uh, to this friend. Context uh, means everything. So let's have a look at the context very briefly before we get into this verse. Some of this will be repeating what I've said in previous weeks, but maybe you weren't here in previous weeks. And you can easily get the wrong end of the stick. You know, we've already heard this morning, haven't we, from what Rachel's just said. So people can come and you can be here today and think, I know what Christianity is all about. It's all about, it's just a religion. It's all about trying to please God. It's all about trying to be good enough. And we can look at this verse and think, oh, well, there we are, look, be good, know a lot. That's what it's all about. That's not what it's all about. That's not what it's all about. Because up until now, Paul has, Peter, sorry, has been outlining all the things that God has done for us. He doesn't start off by saying, these are the things that you've got to do for God. He says we've received our faith from God. This faith that we have, this belief that we've got, it comes from God in verse 1. Peter says it's on a par, it's on a level with the faith that he had, the apostle who spent three years with Jesus. 
Verse 2 tells us that we've received and we continue to receive grace and peace from God. We receive a peace from God where we would have uh, enmity, uh, opposition with God. Um, We receive grace. We receive what we don't deserve. And then in verse 3, we read that his divine power, Christ's power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need. We haven't had to earn it. We haven't had to make it happen ourselves. It's come from God. It's a free gift. It's undeserved. Everything we need for life and godliness. And then we read in verse 4 that through this come his great and precious promises. Promises from God. Promises that enable us to be united with Christ. To be one, participating in the divine nature. Promises that uh, help us to be free from the power that sin has over us and, uh, and, and temptation and desires that, that lead to sin. The power that that has over us. We may escape that. We may escape the corruption. Four verses there saying so much that God has done for us. And those are, are the things that we've looked at over the past three times that I've preached. And if you've not heard those, it would be good if you've got time to get that context, to listen uh, to those messages, which you can download online or get from uh, get on iTunes on the, on the podcast. Because um, we haven't got a lot of time to go into it all today. But that is what it's about so far. It's about what God has given us. We receive from God. And now, Peter says, now we can go on and respond to that love. We can respond to that grace. We can respond in that power. We can respond through that faith that has come to us from God. What we do is always in response to what God has done. Always. Always in response to what God has done. We can see it in a number of other places in the New Testament. For example, I'll just take one. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul is speaking to the Philippians and he says this. He's been talking about um, being able to know Christ and know the power of his resurrection and becoming like him in death and attaining resurrection from the dead. He says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or have been made perfect. We're not perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. He's not saying we press on to take hold of something so that Christ will take hold of us. He's not saying we're after something so that we can impress God and then he will take us as his own. Oh, I'm looking around. I see the godly people. They're the ones who I'm going to choose. That person there's godly. That person there's godly. I'm going to call them into my family. Christ doesn't do that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were powerless, the Bible says, yet Christ came in his strength and his power to reconcile us to God. We cannot do anything. Yes, there is a pressing on. Yes, there is a taking hold of something. Yes, there is action. Yes, there is things that we do, but it's got to be in response to what Christ has already done for us. It's so important because otherwise we slip into a kind of legalistic way of thinking. That means we end up doing things to try to please God, to try and impress God. And it will never work. He's never going to love us any more by what we do. He's never going to love us any less. He loves us on the basis of what Jesus has done. That's entirely and always will be the basis of that. Sometimes we can even think that we've understood that when we first get saved. Oh, yes, I know it's not about me. Oh, I know God's forgiven me for my sins. Oh, I know it's all grace. And then we can start to think, and now it's all about me. I've got to, I've got to keep God impressed. I've got to keep God pleased with me. Otherwise, he's going to leave me. No. He's always going to be pleased with us in that sense because he's pleased with Jesus. But there are things to press on and take hold of. There are things to make every effort to do. And that's what we're going to start to look at today. So Peter says, for this very reason, he's saying it's got to be for these reasons, for this very reason, let's make an effort, every effort to add to our faith, a list of seven qualities. 
that he lists there. We can do it because God has begun a good work in us. We can do it because God has come into a living relationship with us. We can do it because he's freed us from the power of sin. We can do it because he's given us the Holy Spirit. In fact, Christ has given us everything we need to live a godly life. Now, the literal translation of verse 5 for this uh, make every effort to add to your faith. The literal translation of add to your faith is this. It, furnish in your faith. Furnish in your faith goodness or virtue uh, and knowledge and all of these other things. Or equip yourselves with. Equip yourselves with these different qualities. Equip yourselves with these different characteristics. I quite like the idea of furnishing something. When we, uh, in a few months' time, we are going to be moving as a family to Canada um, for initially for six months, uh, and we'll see where things go from there on. But we're going to be moving from Sheffield over to Canada to Fredericton. And uh, the church that we're going to be involved with over there um, are providing us with a house. Now, at the moment, I don't know what where that house is going to be. I don't know anything about that house. I don't even know if they know yet. Um, I don't know if the house is going to be furnished or unfurnished. Uh, let's assume for the moment that it's going to be unfurnished. Um, let's assume that there's not going to be much in there. When we get there to that house, what would we do? Would we just, uh, you know, stand there? Now that, that house is a, is a great gift. It's been given freely to us for that period of time. It will have been. We can't afford to buy a house out in Canada. We can't, you know, we, in fact, actually, because we, we don't live there permanently, I don't even think we're able to buy a house. So we're receiving it as a free gift. We're receiving that house in the same way that we receive so much from God. But what are we going to do when we get there? Are we just going to say, oh, this is it. This is it. This is how it's going to stay. You know, and we're going to have to make the most of it for six months. We'll just keep it as it is. No, we're going to start to furnish it. We're going to start to... To, to get things and, and, and put things in place and make it something which is going to be a place to live in, a place which is going to be comfortable, a place which is going to be a home. And when we're born again, we start a new life in God. It's as though we move house. We start in a completely new place. But we're to give ourselves to furnishing our lives furnishing our lives. We're doing it in partnership with God. So it's not as though God's got nothing to do with it. In fact, God will graciously provide things to us. God will give us the means that we have. His divine power has given us everything we need. We're not left on our own. But we give ourselves, we think, oh, well, we're going to start to furnish our lives, furnish our faith, furnish and add to what we've got, adding in, developing new Godly qualities in our lives, characteristics of our lives. And it takes some time and it takes some energy and it takes some effort. It really is a giving of ourselves, having a determination that we are going to cultivate these characteristics in our life. These fruits of the spirit in our life. We want to see these things. Oh, knowledge and goodness and self-control and perseverance and godliness and kindness and love and other things, other gifts of the uh, fruits of the Spirit that might be mentioned in the Bible at different points. Those are things that I want in my life. I'm pursuing them. I'm going after them. Sometimes I've heard teaching when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, which, which basically says, oh, the, you know, we can just relax in God and these fruit will just appear in our lives. They'll just appear. As though, uh, you know, uh, uh, as though you've got a tree in the garden and then one day you go out and suddenly there's fruit on the tree. Now, you know, I've never been great at growing fruit anyway on trees. I, I've, you know, I've once had an apple tree, never got any apples from it. I just, cause I didn't do much to it. Um, I didn't actually cultivate it. It's, it's not true that we just, we just come and we wait and it, everything happens. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches 
that we make choices in how we live. We have to give ourselves to something. We have to dedicate ourselves to something. Again and again in the New Testament, Paul and Peter and James and uh, other writers of the New Testament, like the writers to the Hebrews, they're exhorting us. They're encouraging us. Come on, live in this way. They're not exhorting us to do something that we're unable to do. In the past, we were unable to do those things. In the past, we couldn't live godly lives. Because we were slaves to sin. And so we were tied up. We were in bondage. It's as though we've got a, a, a bungee rope attached to us. I don't know if you've ever seen one of those bungee runs. I had a go at one of those this last summer in a street party. They tie a bungee cord to you. And then you've got to run down this uh, inflatable and try and get things at the end. And you, it gets harder and harder. And just as you get there, you get pulled back. Because you can't do it. Because you, you're stuck. You're tied. We're slaves to sin. We cannot escape. We can try and do good and it can seem as though we're getting somewhere for a time. But no, no, we're back in it again. We're back in it again. Actually, now we're, we're free. That cord has been cut. Now we are free. But we're standing free. We have to move. We have to choose to actually move towards godliness, move towards virtue, move towards goodness, move towards patience, move towards kindness, move towards love. Otherwise, we're just still standing there. Yeah, we're free. But what's the point in still standing where we were standing all the time? What's the point in standing in sin? And again and again, we read uh, the writers in the New Testament saying to us, come on, don't you know? It's for freedom that you've been set free. Don't let yourself be subject to that yoke of slavery again. Why are you standing there with that cord still attached to you? It has no power over you anymore. You can walk free. That's why you've been set free. It's for freedom. He's telling them those things because we have to do something. We have to make active choices. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 is where uh, Paul is talking again about fruits of the Spirit. Fruits of the Spirit. Let's read uh, Galatians 5 from verse 13. You see the same theme coming up here, you see. Verse 13, Galatians 5. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out. Or you'll be destroyed by each other. And then he goes on. So I say, live by the Spirit. And you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what's contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit to what's contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other. He goes on and outlines that the acts of sinful nature are, he says, they're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, long list. He then lists, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and peace and joy, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Fruits of the Spirit. You can't say from that passage, oh, these things will just appear. Because Paul isn't saying that. He's saying, look, you're called to be free. Don't use that freedom to indulge these sinful things. Don't use these things which are products of the sinful nature, the desires of the sinful nature that you used to have. You don't have that nature anymore, but you've still got a freedom of choice. You've no longer got that sinful nature, but you can choose. You can choose to, oh, I'm going to get involved in these things. He says, if you do that, if you do that, you'll be devoured. Uh, you'll be devouring each other. You'll be destroyed by each other. No, instead, make a choice to, to do these things, to indulge in these things, the things of the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Again and again, we see it in the New Testament. We've crucified our sinful nature. We still have to make every effort. We still make choices to live godly lives. Not because we're living those lives because that's how we please God. That's going back to legalism. But because God has set us free to be free. It's also worth us realizing that when Peter lists these seven fruits, we're back in 2 Peter again there. When he says, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and he lists them like that he's not um he's not saying that these things will come one at a time he's not saying that we we've got to 
we've got to um, get goodness sorted out first. And then when we're sorted with goodness, then we're going to concentrate on knowledge. It doesn't make a lot of sense, really, does it? It doesn't really make a lot of sense to take that passage. For example, you might be chatting to someone and you might say, oh, um, you're, not very, you're not a very kind person. You don't seem, I, thought you, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you followed Jesus. But you, you've not been very kind there. Um, you know, if, if that person says, well, do you know what? I would be kind, but I've not mastered perseverance yet. So I've not even started on kindness. You know, I'm, I'm still working my way through this list. In fact, you know, self-control is a bit of an issue. I, I got stuck there for quite a while. Um, so, so, you know, never mind the uh, whole thing about um, godliness and brotherly kindness and love and, and perseverance. You know, that, they'll come several years later. No, it, it's not a kind of stepping thing. It's not like you add one to another. These are all things which we can give ourselves to together. They're all things which we can see coming about in our life uh, together. Um, you know, you wouldn't, it's nonsensical, isn't it? You wouldn't go into a house and say, well, I haven't got a bed yet because I've not yet bought a table. Once I've bought a table, I'll get myself a bed. You know, actually, you will, you'll furnish your house pretty much at the same time if your house is totally empty. You'll make sure you've got what you need. These are all ingredients in the lives of well-grounded believers who are living by the Spirit. Now, having said that, we've got these list of seven and uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, said that you could group these lists, this list into three categories. He said, goodness and knowledge speak of the character of our faith. He said, self-control and perseverance speak of our inward disposition. And he said, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love speak in how we relate to others. So, who am I to disagree with the doctor? So we're going to do that. By the way, I've often wondered, which doctor was he? Did he come before David Tennant? And anyway, maybe it was the missing... Anyway, if you're not into Doctor Who, that will be... Uh... <laughs> Let me just scrub that joke for the afternoon congregation. <laughs> it's always good to have a testing ground for the real, uh, real meeting, isn't it, in the afternoon? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> what was I saying? Yes. <laughs> Let's take these... Um, I'm embarrassed now. Let's take these groups uh, in, in, these, in these three categories over the next three times that we look. So today, uh, we'll look at goodness and knowledge. So you'll be pleased to know we're not going to go through all seven today. Um, goodness and then knowledge. So first of all, goodness. What is it that, uh, that Peter's encouraging us to add to our faith? Goodness or virtue is another word that is sometimes used in some of the translations. Virtue. What makes someone good? What makes someone good? Jesus had someone approach him who called him good in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 and verse 18. Uh, the rich ruler. He says, a certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. Jesus' response was, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And uh, Jesus went on to um, talk about the commandments. And eventually, he, it was this man who Jesus said to, actually, what you lack is this. Sell everything you have. Give to the poor. Have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. And the man goes away sad. Uh, because he was very rich and he doesn't follow Jesus. But the start of this passage, interesting little conversation about what being good is. And we can often miss this. Why, why do you call me good, says Jesus? No one is good except God alone. Now, of course, Jesus was God. So in a sense, uh, this man's got it right. Um, Jesus was good because he was God. Um, he wasn't wrong in addressing him like that. But probably... He said it to him as flattery. Probably this man came up and, uh, and was trying to flatter him, was trying to kind of just get alongside him. Oh, do you know what? I'm, I'm with you, really. I'm good. Oh, good teacher. You know, it, a bit like um, 
Maybe it was a bit like you get in, in, in Prime Minister's Question Times. You ever watch Prime Minister's Question Times on, uh, on TV or listen to it on the radio? You'll get people who are asking questions, and obviously you'll get the opposition asking questions which are quite aggressive to the Prime Minister. But it seems that there's, there's a, it seems to me that there's, there's people who are on the Prime Minister's own side. They're going to take a bit of time up, and they're going to ask a question which is really basically not a question at all. It's really just saying, you're doing a great job. And, uh, and then the Prime Minister can answer and go, thank you for that question. I agree that I am doing a great job on this and be able to say what they do. So it's, it's kind of one of those things. And I wonder if that's a bit like this, this ruler here. Oh, good teacher, you know. Oh, we do, yeah, we're doing well here together. We're on one side here. What, tell us, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's thinking that he's got all his things sorted out. You know, Jesus is saying, oh, what, what about the commandments? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, honor your father. Oh, yes, yes, I've, I've done all of those things. You know, I, he's thinking he's good. He's thinking he's good. But Jesus is undercutting it straight away by going, why are you calling me good? No one's good apart from God. Now, Jesus was God, but this man wasn't. So he's straight away, oh, okay, I, maybe I'm not good. Maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Um, and of course, in the end, um, the man isn't thinking that he's a good teacher at all, because what's Jesus' teaching? Jesus' teaching is, you've got to sell everything you've got, you've got to give it to the poor, then you can follow me. The man's thinking, well, I'm not going to do that. So he's not really thinking that that teaching is good, is he? Because he doesn't want to follow him. No longer saw him as a good teacher. Often we can have, if we're a believer, we can have people respond to us. I've certainly had people come to say to me, oh, you are good, aren't you? You know, if, if, someone, if someone's asking me a question, if they, especially if they don't know me, because <laughs> if they know me, they would have. Um, but especially if they don't know me, you know, oh, what, what do you do with your life? Oh, well, you know, I, I, I do this. It used to especially be the case when I led the kids club that we, that we ran here. You know, oh, well, yeah, I, I work and, and we, do, we do this kids' work in the local community run by the church and we try to help the kids and we try to, you know, I'd explain it in different ways. And people would say, oh, you are good, aren't you? I, I really never quite knew how to respond to that because it was kind of a, a funny thing to be asked. People see you as good. Uh, and in a sense, they're right because they're seeing goodness coming out in our life. But what they're not seeing is that we're, it's not because we're in, inherently good people. It's not as though we're better people than anyone else. Um, it's only because of God's intervention in our life that we can live good and godly lives. The thing that people often miss is that we're following Jesus. Because they're looking at the things that people do. They're looking at the things that Christians might do, that believers might do. Oh, you're such good people. But often then they'll turn it around and they'll say, Oh, do you know, I'm not good enough to be a Christian like you. I wish I could, I wish I could believe, but I'm not good enough. And that's a really good opportunity at that point to say, well, actually, you know, you've totally got that the wrong way around. We don't need to be good enough. It's not about being a good person to be a believer. Jesus was good enough. The only reason we can know God, the only reason we can live godly lives is because Jesus was good enough. So what Peter's talking about here isn't that we are good people to start off with. It's an outworking of our faith. Add to your faith or furnish in your faith goodness. So your faith will outwork itself in goodness. You will see the furnishings of goodness in faith. James explains this quite well in his letter, quite well. He's all right, it's James. James explains this well in his letter. Um, uh, If I can find James, where is he? There we are, after Hebrews. James chapter 2. He says this. We'll read uh, this whole section here because it'll help us. From verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sisters without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, oh, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe there's one God, oh good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, 
Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was our ancestor Abraham not considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And scripture was fulfilled in that. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in different directions? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And this is, I mean, we could preach on this passage on its own, but this, this is a passage which is, is often misunderstood by people, especially verse um, 24. A person, you see, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. That verse is taken by people to say, well, what is James talking about? He's clearly contradicting what Paul's saying. Paul's saying we're justified and we're made right by faith. And um, James seems to be saying it's by what we do. He seems to be in legalism here. We need to understand what James is actually saying. James is saying that if we've got faith, it will outwork itself. It will be seen in what we do. We will be doing good works. We will be active in our faith. So he's saying, you know, if someone is saying, oh, I have faith, but there's nothing going on in their lives. In other words, there's no fruit in their lives. In other words, they've not moved from the very position they were in. They're saying, oh, I believe in God. Well, it's not just about believing in God. He's saying even the demons believe in God. And they're scared. They shudder at the thought of God. It's no good just saying, oh, I've been set free. If you don't use that freedom to outwork in a godly life. So James is saying the two have got to go together. Faith and works. Faith and deeds. Faith and goodness. Christian faith will outwork itself always. It will always be seen. I was in India um, last week and with, with Blessan, who's part of our North congregation, uh, who's Indian himself. And he was, uh, we were traveling around. He was uh, talking about Hinduism uh, because there's a strongly Hindu society there. And it, it, he was, I was exp- asking some questions about some of the uh, behavior that I'd seen or some of the things that I'd seen. And Blessan said, you know what? He said, the Hindu religion, it doesn't actually demand or produce any moral goodness in that believer. So you can believe in Hinduism, but it doesn't ask you to be good, and it certainly doesn't give you the power to be good. He says, so we have, you can have devout Hindus who treat people in terrible ways, or who get drunk, or do all sorts of different things. Now, hear me right, I'm not saying all Hindus do that, but he's saying, actually, the religion itself doesn't give the power to be good and actually doesn't even say it's important. It says all that's important is actually this, you know, your, your belief and uh, in terms of relationship to God. It's not about uh, ourselves. But we see in the Bible, faith and actions work together. They work together. This word goodness is the same word that comes at the end of verse 3 of 2 Peter, where we see that God called us by his own glory and goodness. God's goodness was working itself out. It had an outworking. He sent his son to die for us. He, he brought us into a living relationship with him. That's what we see of God's goodness. And our goodness is nothing unless it's seen in action. It's seen in, 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 in how we live our lives. So faith isn't a private thing. Faith can't be a private thing. People say, oh, my, my faith in God, I, don't talk to me about that. It's a private thing. It's between me and God. Biblical faith isn't a private thing. It can't be a private thing because it always works itself out. Faith is a living thing. It's active. It's vigorous. It's dynamic. It's energetic. For men, it's a, a manly faith. It's, it's not a kind of limp, lettuce, wet, handshake, passivity Oh, that's what it's all about. No, that's the stereotype of what Christians are about. And because, because that is how Christianity is seen, we need to make sure that we are living a faith that is very different to that. We don't just fit into that stereotypical mold. Actually, our faith is totally different. We are about up and doing and putting our faith into practice. 
It's got to be outworked in actions. It's got to be outworked in goodness. Because it, it cannot be anything other. It cannot be anything other. But then we see Peter saying, goodness is coupled with knowledge. Goodness and knowledge. Now, this is a different kind. So the word, I said the word goodness is the same word that's in verse 3. But actually, the word knowledge is a different word to the word knowledge that's in verse 3. So in verse 3 we read, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. In that verse, verse 3, he's talking about us knowing God personally, relationship with God, a relationship with God, our knowledge of him. The Greek word is different in verse 5. Add to your, add to goodness, knowledge. And this word here uh, actually means the knowledge of God, more of an understanding of who God is, more of a, a, a kind of learning about who God is. What is his character like? What are his qualities? How does he relate to us? Not, not that relationship with God, although it obviously links in with that, but an understanding of God. So that we can live in the light of that knowledge. So how do we make every effort to get a greater understanding of God and a greater knowledge of God? Well, it comes through a variety of different means. One is that we've been given the word of God. We've been given the Bible. We've been given uh, God's words to us. And so we have got the ability to read the Bible. We've got an ability to study the Bible. As we read the Bible and as we study it and as we try and wrestle with it sometimes and understand, I don't get this bit, but it must make sense and try and work out what it means. Actually, we will have a greater knowledge of God, a greater understanding of God. Other ways that we might get a greater understanding of God are obviously listening to messages uh, and to, to preaching that is biblical uh, and teaching that is biblical. We can get a greater knowledge by discussing things with other people, other believers, um, discussing issues, seeking to apply the truth that we find in the Bible. Um, that's what we do in our core groups. So we would strongly encourage everyone who is a member with us and, and maybe with us regularly to get involved in a core group, a midweek group, because that's a place where we can give ourselves to understanding God a bit better. It's not just about an intellectual understanding. It's not just about, oh, I've learned these verses. Although those things can be helpful, but there's an applying and an outworking of it in our lives as well. So we've got a bookshop downstairs. That's not just a, a coincidence. It's not just that we, we thought, oh, there's a bit of a space there. What are we going to do with that? What, what, what should we put in there? Oh, I know. Let's fill it with some books. Oh, we can, now it looks a bit better. Actually, that's there because we really want to give people an opportunity to get hold of some helpful books. What will those books do? They will give us a better knowledge of God. So we will, we will buy books in that are good ones and that are recommended to us or that we might have read and recommend to you. We will plug books and, and uh, maybe at, on, on meetings and say, actually, this book is really helpful. And then you have a choice. And we're not forcing you to buy books you know not everyone can read and, and likes reading very well that's fine but they're there they're to help us they're to help us in our understanding of God they're to help us in our knowledge of God people often come up uh, to us with the question how can I know God's will in my life how can I know what God's will is for my life and often behind that question is, is a, a sense of, of just wanting God to supernaturally speak to us. So maybe through the prophetic, and often people ask prophetic people, oh, have you got a word for me? What they really mean is, can you tell me uh, what I should do in this situation in my life? Can you tell me where God wants me to go? And sometimes God does guide us and, and teach us and lead us through prophetic. But actually, to have a good knowledge of Scripture to have a good understanding of who God is and a knowledge of God, that will really help us in knowing God's will in our life. We'll be far better equipped. Now, Peter is an excellent person to encourage us in this, isn't he? Because when we read the Gospels, we see what Peter was like. He was a man of action. 
He wasn't, you know, if you, if you talk about someone who is going to outwork their faith in goodness or whatever, he was that man. He was all set for doing whatever it was. Yeah, I'm full of zeal. He was a manly follower of Jesus. He had a lot of passion. He wouldn't have given a limp handshake. He'd be more likely to whip his sword out and chop your ear off. Um, He was always full of ideas about what to do in any situation. Always quick to give his opinion. Always the first to act. But he lacked knowledge. He was with Jesus for three years, but he still lacked knowledge. He lacked understanding. Again, we see it in a number of different places. Let's look at one, Matthew 15. Matthew 15, and uh, we'll read from verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth doesn't make him unclean. What comes out of his mouth, that's what makes him unclean. Then his disciples came to him and said, you know, the Pharisees were offended when they heard this. Jesus replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They're blind guides. If a blind man leads leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. So Jesus has explained this parable. Now, the Pharisees understand what he's saying. The Pharisees, and they get offended by it. Because they're saying, actually, it isn't about what we eat. It isn't about external things. Jesus goes on to quite graphically explain it later on. Don't you see? Whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then comes out of the body. Um, but the things that come out of a mouth come out of the heart. So he, Jesus is saying it's about what's in your heart. It's not about external things. So he's, he's said this little parable or example. The Pharisees have understood it and they've got offended by it. Peter says... In verse 15, explain the parable to us. And Jesus' response is, are you still so dull? <laughs> Not particularly patient with him. He's, uh, he's working through his list of... Uh, are you still so dull? Have you still not understood? Peter is full of action but lack of understanding. He, 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 he gets it sometimes. He, sometimes it's almost as though he stumbles upon it. When Jesus says, who do people say I am? Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter goes, you're the Christ. And Jesus is like, you've got it. Well done. And, he, and Jesus goes, yes, I am the Christ. And I need to, I will go and I will be kept, taken captive and I will be put to death uh, at the hands of sinful men. And Peter goes, no, that must never happen. No, you can't do that. And Jesus goes, oh, get behind me, Satan. You don't understand. You don't understand the things of God. You understand the things of men. You don't understand the things of God. So often we can understand the things of men. We have what we could call worldly wisdom. Oh, that seems like a good idea. Oh, I think that's what we should do in our life. That makes sense, doesn't it? It might sound good in the same way as Peter saying, no, of course you mustn't die. Could have sounded good. It could have sounded right. It wasn't godly wisdom. It wasn't understanding. Do you know what? The more we understand God, the more we know of God, the more we read his word, the more we will see that God's kingdom is an upside down kingdom. It's often been called that, an upside down kingdom. What does that mean? It means that actually what what God does and what God says and what God thinks is often totally opposite to what the world would think. You know, it's almost as though in any situation you are facing in your life, If you make a decision, stop yourself and think, is that what my uh, non-believing friends would think was a good idea? And if if they would, chances are it's not what God would think. It might be on occasions, but chances are it's more likely than not that God would think the opposite. Because time and again you see in God's word opposite values, opposite way of working. It's totally different. It's a totally different kingdom that we're living in. So we need to understand where we are. We need to understand our culture. Just the same as when I was in India, I had to try and understand some of their culture to be able to bring biblical teaching to them. But I needed to understand the culture. We need to understand the culture we live in. We do need to understand the world and and the worldly culture, but we need to also understand the Bible and God and godly culture. We need to have that knowledge and understanding. Otherwise, we can end up living our lives in ways which are not godly or doing things that we regret 
or making hasty decisions about things. We can end up living in a false understanding of what the gospel is. A false understanding of how we live our lives in the light of it. And Peter will go on in this letter uh, to Peter. He'll go on to explain and to speak of false prophets and false teachers. He says these false prophets and these false teachers, they secretly introduce destructive heresies, things that aren't godly. How do we guard ourselves against people who will introduce teaching into the church? And it might be people within our church, but it might be within, within the Christian community. It might, now we've got the internet. It might be people who we think, oh, do you know, I really trust that person. I'm going to believe everything that person says. But they might start to introduce doctrine and teaching, which is destructive. And Peter's saying, we've got to guard against that. We've got to guard against that. How are we going to guard against it? By increasing our knowledge and understanding of God and knowing what biblical doctrine is. Doctrine, doctrine can scare people, that word. Well, I don't, doctrine, oh, it's all a bit much. It's just, it just means understanding. It just means understanding of God. Verse 19 of chapter 2, Peter says, These people, they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would be better off for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned our backs on it. He's saying, look, there's these people. They're bringing teaching. It sounds godly. In Kerala, where I was in India, the teaching, the main teaching that was coming that, that Blessan and I were trying to uh, teach into or against was a doctrine of extreme grace. That doctrine which just says, do you know what? We've been set free from bondage and now we can live our lives exactly how we like. We don't have to, we don't have to live godly lives. We don't have to be pure. We don't have to be holy. We, we're, we're accepted by God. We will always be accepted by God. Do you know what? That, that is true. We will. It's, it's taking some of the truth and then it's twisting it. It's not, it's not adding the extra bit. It's not taking the, for this very reason, make every effort. It's ignoring that bit and saying, we can live how we like. And Peter's saying, that is what these teachers are doing. They promise freedom, but they're getting involved in all of this stuff. They're getting involved in all this stuff, which is of the sinful nature. They're getting involved in debauchery and drunkenness and sexual immorality. And they're giving themselves and they're entangled by it. And he says they're being mastered by it. That's not freedom. They're they're being mastered. They're going back to what they were in. He's really strong about it, doesn't he? He says the proverb's true. A dog returns to its vomit. Oh, don't mince your words, Peter. You know, he's strong on it. This is important because it's easy to misunderstand. It's easy to hear about grace. You know, we, we work hard in our preaching to explain about grace. We don't have to do anything to please God. We'll say it time and time again. It's all about what Jesus has done. We stand free. We can't make God love us more. He's not going to love us any less. We're free in Christ. It's all undeserved. You've got to understand that. But once you've understood that, the danger is do what we like. So then we've got to teach into, no, they've got to hold the two intention. And it's very easy to fall into legalism or it's very easy to fall into extreme grace. And Peter's saying, we need an understanding. We need a good understanding of God. Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of how Christ has equipped the church. You know, because God has given us everything we need. He's given us everything we need. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. We're coming, we're coming into land. But Ephesians chapter, I've been on too many planes. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11 says, it was Christ, it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Why in the church? Why? To prepare God's people for works of service. Not just that they might believe something and, oh, okay. For works of service. 
so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure and fullness of Christ. God wants you to be mature. God wants us to be a mature church. Praise God, we have had excellent teaching from Arnold, who has led this church for 15 years. We've had excellent teaching. Those of us who have been sitting under that, if we've been drinking in of that, if we've been feeding off that rather than just looking at our watches and waiting, when's he going to finish? Actually, if we've been hungering after that teaching, because that will do us good and do us good in our lives, we will have become more mature. But there's still way to go. We can still become more mature. We still need to keep feeding off the Bible. We still need to keep feeding off his word. We still need to keep pursuing godliness. We still need to have an active faith. And God has equipped the church. He's given us apostles. He's given us prophets to stir us up and encourage us. He's given us evangelists. He's given us pastors and teachers to shepherd us and to teach us. We've been given everything we need. But it's our response. What are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Are we going to be passive? Or are we going to actively and hungrily pursue those things? It's not about intellect. We don't have to be intellectual. Peter's not saying that. He was a fisherman. He wasn't a PhD student. He learned the things of God. He was dull. He didn't understand. But he got to a place of understanding where he could write letters to the churches and communicate some of that understanding. He'd grown in his understanding. Don't make excuses and say, oh, well, I'm not an intellectual. I'm no good at reading. I can never do that. Of course you can. Of course you can. It's just come to mind. I hope you won't mind me saying. But Tom, Tom Lee. Tom Lee, you know, growing up, he's dyslexic. That perfect excuse. Oh, I don't need to read the Bible. Actually, no, he's given himself. He's given himself to understanding the Bible. He's maybe used different techniques and had to work harder at times, but he's devoted himself to it till the point where he's able to then communicate and teach others, which is what him and Ellen have been out doing in India for a year. You don't have to be at a certain level, but there's no excuse for not giving ourselves. If we know God, let's give ourselves to pursuing him. So there we are. Two things, the first two things that we are furnishing our house of faith with, and we'll see more next time. But for now, let's, let's, let's focus on these today. Faith is accompanied by action, by goodness. And itself, that action comes together with a sound knowledge of God. So it's not just action without wisdom. It knows God. We know his ways. We know his teaching. It's not a private, passive thing. We are known by our fruit. Praise God. He's given us the ability. Let's seek after these things and more that we'll look at later in our relationship with God. So let's pray.